Good morning. Go ahead and take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, kids are going to go down to their class. Title of our message this morning is Night Flights, Bookworms, and Hoity Toities. <laughs> You'll see what I'm talking about later, I guess. Acts 17. Um, and we're going to read verses 30 through 33 to, to begin this morning. And it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So spring is just around the corner, and I know we're getting spring fever. Um, Weather is getting, stringing a few nice days together. my wife has been composting and eyeing seeds at the home improvement stores. And, but for me, when it comes to planting things, the closest that I get is like spreading grass seed or weed and feed. <laughs> um, but I do know when you are planting whatever, I do know that the, the soil that you're planting in matters. Um, you can't plant on uh, gravel, obviously, uh, if you try to plant on asphalt, it's not going to do a whole lot. Um, sometimes soil can be too acidic. Sometimes soil can be too alkaline. But there's a... Um, it matters what type of soil that you place the seed in. In Luke chapter 8, remember Luke uh, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts is really just a volume 2 of this major... Uh, story that he's recording to a guy named Theophilus who is going to spread these these works uh, around the early church. But in Luke chapter 8, Luke records the parable of the soils that Christ told. And he said that there was a sower that went out sowing seed, and quite indiscriminately he uh, threw some that fell on the, uh, the rock, he threw some down that got trampled underfoot, Uh, Some landed among the thorns, and the seeds were choked out. And then some actually landed on good soil. So in that case, 25% of the the seed took took root and actually gave, um, bore fruit. So the soil matters. The soil matters. And this morning we're talking about gospel proclamation. When we proclaim the the gospel, the soil still matters. We have the powerful word of God, the seed which is the the gospel, but God's got to be working on people's hearts um, for for them to receive that. But we can't assume that we all know the condition of every heart. 
So this morning, what we see in this passage here in Acts chapter 17 is the gospel proclamation provokes various responses. We're still on the same missionary journey that we were in last week when Pastor Jared uh, covered Acts chapter 16, and we talked about uh, Philippi and basic, well, they got arrested there, and there was a supernatural earthquake, and the, the jailer got converted as such as did uh, Lydia earlier in the narrative and probably the uh, demoniac girl where the, the, uh, the, the demon had been cast out of the little slave girl. And so we're continuing uh, that, that journey. And it says here in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Amphipolis and Apollonia were large cities themselves. Um, Presumably the reason why Paul did not stop there is because there was no synagogue. We see here that he had a pattern of going into cities, and the first place that he went to was the the synagogue, where the Jews would meet, or even those that were devoted uh, to God. Not Not full converts to Judaism, but they believed in a God and they took God rather serious. Um, so gospel proclamation provokes various responses. The first response I want us to see this morning uh, in Thessalonica is resistance. Resistance. Now I'm going to give you three re- gospel responses this morning. And you're actually going to see probably all three in all three of these cities. But they are prominent um, as, as we're... Um, as we cover these, okay? So the first one is resistance. Um, So Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he goes to the synagogue of the Jews, and it says in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ uh, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the, the content of Paul's message is Christ's suffering death, Christ's resurrection from the dead, and then the identity of Christ, proving that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And so many of the people believe the message that uh, that Paul and Silas are preaching there in Thessalonica, um, and things seem to be going great. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, the rabble would be like those that are just hanging around in the marketplace, taking wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Apparently, Jason had, was housing uh, the missionaries. In verse 6, it says, And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, that is, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Thessalonica is what's called a free city under Rome. They have a little bit more authority to act than some of the other Roman city, the other Roman cities. And they bring two accusations to this missionary movement uh, to the, these, rule, these rulers, right? And the two accusations are they turn the world upside down 
That's an uh, insurrection. They're accusing them of insurrection. And then um, they taught that there was another king. They're accusing them of treason. So insurrection and treason are pretty uh, weighty things in the eyes of the Romans. I mean, if you're going to make a top five list of the things the Romans don't like, these are near, near the top. Insurrection and, uh, insurrection and treason. And it says in verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We don't know where Paul and Silas are. Maybe they're doing some kind of mission. Uh, maybe they are purposefully avoiding this scene. Don't know. But Jason ends up posting a bond for them. What would happen is he pays, Jason pays a certain amount, and if, there, if more trouble rises up, that means Jason forfeits the bond that he has paid. So Paul and Silas take this as direction from the Lord, and they move on to the next city. But there is resistance that rises up from these, these Jews, which shows us that resistance or rejection of the gospel will come at times. It's not an if. It's something that we should expect. Um, Christ obviously experienced rejection and resistance. The early church did, and we should not expect anything different, that there will be times where there is resistance and rejection. So this means that sometimes people will reject the message, and it also means sometimes that they're going to reject me. That's the hard part, isn't it? Like, if, if, especially if you by default are a people pleaser and you just want everybody to be happy with you, that's not the, 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 not, that's not the fun part of our, our task. Because the gospel is confrontational. The gospel is confrontational, and because it's confrontational, it will subsequently at times offend many people. Here you have the, the Jews that are offended, but here later in this passage you'll see even, even more. All right, so the first, uh, the first response that, is, uh, that the gospel provokes is resistance. The second response is eagerness. All right, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So Paul and Silas, in this scenario, they decided it's best to just leave quietly in the night. Now, they didn't do that at Philippi, but they're doing that here. Um, so they leave, and they go off the Ignatian Way, which is like the main road that loops around this area of Greece. And um, to kind of probably throw the Jews off their track a little bit, they go to... Now, Berea is a large city in and of itself, but it's not necessarily on the Ignatian Way. But they go to Berea, and it says, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, these are, these are folks that are, at this point, they're unbelievers, but they do believe in the authority of scripture and submitting themselves to the, the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul, as Paul guides them through these relevant Old Testament uh, scriptures regarding the Christ and showing that he had to suffer, he had to raise from the dead, and this Jesus of Nazareth is him. Um, they examine the scriptures for themselves. They don't just take Paul's word for it. 
not just his authority, but they look at the scriptures themselves. And the result in verse 12 is that many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, in Thessalonica, most of the people that had believed, you had a mix, you had Jews and Gentiles, but most of the people that had believed in Thessalonica were, uh, were Greeks, were Gentiles. But here, um, more of the Jews are going to respond, and they're eager to search the Old Testament, search the Scriptures to see if what Paul is saying could possibly be true. Verse 13, but... When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So these same Jews that caused the ruckus in Thessalonica, they find out as people are traveling and they hear rumors, they find out where Paul has now popped up. He is now at Berea and he's preaching the same gospel that people were responding to in Thessalonica. And so they get together, they strategize, and they show up at Berea now. And they're going to try to do the same thing to agitate folks against Paul. Now, for some reason, Paul, maybe he was the main speaker, don't know, but Paul kind of becomes the lightning rod figure here. And Paul decides, well, it's best for me to kind of slide out of this picture because the gospel mission can keep going on without me, which is a great principle, right? Like, God doesn't need his workers god will accomplish what he's going to accomplish there's no one individual other than jesus christ who is the the key to the entire work of god all right none of us none of us are but paul showing humility here he knowing he's the lightning rod he leaves and the work of god keeps prospering Silas and Timothy stay behind for a little while and they keep ministering and they keep discipling and teaching folks. But Paul now goes from uh, Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. Now Athens, centuries before this or even decades to centuries before this was kind of like the intellectual center of the world um, where you had all these prominent philosophers rise up with their prominent teachings. Now by this point, Athens glory is certainly fading some uh some commentators think the population or at athens at this time is around thirty thousand. some even said ten thousand. so it's it's waning in its glory but it's still highly recognized as an intellectual uh, location strategically that is so gospel proclamation will provoke sometimes resistance uh, sometimes eagerness, and sometimes it'll provoke curiosity, okay? Verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens had more idols probably than people. Um, 
Clinton Arnold lists all the idols that were probably, or the different gods that were represented in Athens. He said, Athena, which Athens was named after, the patron goddess of Athens was probably the most popular. Certainly, every deity of the Greek pantheon was worshipped here. These included Zeus, Hera, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, Aphrodite, uh, Asclepius, Athena Nike, Athena Polias, Castor, Pollux, Demeter, Dionysus, the Irenes, Eros, Gi, the Gracis, uh, Hades, Hephaestus, uh, Hecate, Heracles, Hermes, Hestia, Pan, Persephone, and Poseidon. So a, uh, a city that quite literally is full of idols, like everywhere. Probably each household has, has multiple ones because they're somewhat um, superstitious. They don't want to leave one out. Yeah, we may have the, the goddess of fertility in our house, but we don't want to forget the, the god of rain. So uh, we better, better have that one as well. And so all of this idol worship was provoking Paul in his, in his spirit. And so before he... Uh, even keeps waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin with him. He goes out to the synagogues and to the marketplaces and he starts proclaiming the gospel again. Now they but they didn't have the only one that matters. And this bothers and burdens Paul And he can't wait any longer but to proclaim the truth to them. So it says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So um, you have the Epicureans and the Stoics that are mentioned here. Just real quickly, Epicureanism, this this rose, um, well, we're not going to worry how it rose, but the belief was basically this. There is no afterlife. Everything is is material. and the way you live the good life, as, a, as an Epicurean taught, was to wring all the pleasure you can out of this life. Now, when we say pleasure um, now, in our current context, we think of just um, no, no restraints whatsoever. It wasn't quite that. Um, it was still try to harmonize with nature and natural truth and, and live a decent life. But get as much out of this life as you, as you can. Um, so they were the, the deists. Like they believed that there were, um, that there was, were gods, but they weren't concerned with what was happening in this earth. So they didn't necessarily re- represent the common man. Um, now the Stoics, they believed that gods were like mystif- mystical force, forces that worked. Um, the important things to them were character, virtue, uh, leaving a legacy. Stoicism is one of the prominent um, ways that you still see today of people trying to attempt to live the good life. Really, any, any alternative to live the good life today, it seems like they mostly fall under these, these things that were taught millennia ago. 
But for both of these groups, the gods that are going, that are there in Athens and represented are more cultural than religious, but the Stoics and the Epicureans didn't necessarily represent the common man in the marketplace. So, um, they accuse Paul of being this babbler. They're, they're wondering, well, what, is your, what are exactly are your credentials? Because what it sounds like you're doing is you're picking up something from here and picking up something from there and trying to make a system out of it. That's what that word babbler here means. It means a seed picker. It gives the imagery of a bird that comes along and picks up a piece of seed here, a piece of seed there, moves along its way. Moves along its way. And so that's what they're accusing um, Paul of, saying, oh, well, We've never heard of this. It, it doesn't sound reasonable to us. You're just, a, you're just a babbler. But the gospel is not a philosophical lightweight. That's important for us to remember that the gospel that Paul proclaims here in Athens is intellectually superior and more soul-satisfying than any philosophy that anyone can bring that is made out of human ingenuity. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Uh, so the Areopagus, your translation in this passage might call it Mars Hill, which is what basically the, the Latin version. Um, it's, it can be translated Areopagus, Mars Hill, or even uh, the Hill of, of Ares. Any of those things is, is accurate. But the Areopagus was, first of all, it was a location in Athens, but it was also a group of people that met. They may have even met at that location. It's like Marsh Hill, Mars Hill. So it's like the Areopagus meeting at Mars Hill. So like when we say Capitol Hill, speaking of Washington, it, it's kind of including two things. There's like an actual location, the Capitol, but then it's also talking about the governing body. So that's what Areopagus is talking about here. And they, they bring Paul to the Areopagus, and they say in verse 20, you bring some strange or some, some foreign things uh, to our ears. Now, in this intellectual place where they think they've heard it all, they've got everything figured out, here is Paul that is bringing something to them that is novel. And he says, We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21 Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This was a, a central location from people all across the world would come and, and conjecture about philosophy. Verse 22, so here's the setting. Paul is standing in front of this governing body, um, at least parts of the governing body that are there, because this seems like an informal thing where they've just brought him there. Um, and he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Some translations say superstitious. Um, it, it, it can mean either. You're, you're superstitious or very religious, and in this context it probably means both. The reason that, the reason that they are religious and have an idol for everything is because they want to cover all their bases. He says in verse 23, For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Um, Paul is saying, look, I'm not bringing anything novel. Even in these inscriptions on some of your plaques throughout the city, you, your philosophers recognize that they don't have it all figured out. And there, there might be uh, some level of ignorance that they have. There might be a God that they're missing. And so Paul is boldly proclaiming, I'm telling you about the ultimate being in the universe right now. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In this city where temples are all over the place. He says in verse 25, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This this God, the Old Testament God, now the New Testament God, he doesn't need to be served in a temple. In fact, he is self-existing, self-sustaining. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need you to bring food to him like your pantheon of gods. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He says this God, he is the one that is responsible for human life. Human life was not just created by a force, by a a thunderous movement, or an energy, or what we would say today, or luck. He, He was personally involved, which would go against the Epicureans and the Stoics. And this God further, he is providential over history. Say, say, he says, having determined allotted periods or epochs or uh, seasons and the boundaries, that is geographical boundaries of the, the, the dwelling place of these world leaders and world nations. Verse 27, the reason, he says, that they should seek God. One of the purposes of God is for the nations to seek after him. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul is saying that they are still in darkness. All the religion, all the religiosity, all the cultisms, all the false worship, all of the self-man-made ingenuity and effort, they're still in darkness. But he says, yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. He says, all of these, all this, this idolatry that you're doing, it's your own efforts to figure out ultimate truth because you're still in, in darkness. And he says here in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is stressing this truth that God is not far from each and every one of us. Now, he, he doesn't exist in every material thing like some of those philosophers would teach. He's actually, um, he's, out, he's a part of us. Yes, he's omnipresent, but he's transcendent. But he's also imminent. Uh, so Paul's actually, he uses a quote from, from a philosopher that they would have been familiar with, kind of like 
if I was making an argument or making a point, and if it fit with my point, I would quote a, uh, just a secular uh, musician or something. That is what Paul is doing. He's using something they're familiar with. And he says, look, he's not far from us, and your philosophers haven't been that far away from getting it. Because even they recognize in him we live and move and have our being, that ultimate being. And he said, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, that poet missed it because he was talking about Zeus in that context. But Paul here is saying that the ultimate being, the transcendent being of the universe, God, we come from him. He personally created us. That is, uh, God was the prototype feel strange saying it but god was the prototype for humanity our we bear the we all bear the image of god in flawed ways because of the curse because of the fall but we are able to reason we are able to love we are able to do a lot of these things why we are all capable of good every person in the world is capable of good why because we bear the image of god and so he says he goes on to say in verse 29 being then god's offspring We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says all these idols, they were just made up by by human beings, by their own creativity, and these do not represent God well. In fact, he says since we're made in the image of God, shouldn't God be something like us, able to reason, able to love? And Paul here, it's like he's saying, your, your poets have gotten so close. So close. And let me fill in the gaps for you. Let me fill in the blanks. He, and he says in verse 30, The times of ignorance God has overlooked. You've been grasping in the dark. You've been grasping like a blind man, trying to find your way to truth. Well, guess what? Revelation is here. And I'm speaking the truth to you. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. I think, well, I know, I would be lying to you this morning if I fully understood what the times of ignorance means here but it does mean i know that that there is this whole time throughout history where people and nations have risen and they haven't they've seen general revelation around them the fact that there is a god but they haven't been able to put all the pieces together but now christ has come incarnate And he went and he suffered on a cross, but he rose again from the dead three days later, which vindicated all of Jesus' claims. And one of his claims was that he was going to be the judge to which all men stand before and are accountable to. And so God, raising Jesus from the dead, has vindicated that it's not Zeus, it's not Athena, it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we are going to stand before. So Paul's flow of thought is that God is the... Well, there's an unknown God, one ultimate being, and He is God. He is the Creator. Uh, he is the Savior. He, has, he is the Judge.
Instead of God being a God that just created and left everything alone or just moved some some mystical energy to create life, this God was personally involved. He's not like an idol. Instead, He is relational. He is knowable. When we go out and we see the majesty of creation and the majesty of God's works, we can actually converse and know that God. One writer put it like this. He says, Paul is contending here that the Creator will hold a cosmic trial. The time has been set. The judge has been chosen. The notice has been posted. Therefore, repent. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So here are these three responses that you see all over again in just this little passage. Some mocked. Because the resurrection, life after death, physical life after death, did not fit into their worldview. And so they mock, they just throw it out. Now, if, some, if there's something in our worldview that does not fit with Scripture, that's mean it's, that means it's time for us to adapt our worldview and not vice versa. Because we stand under the authority of Scripture. Verse 33, it says, So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there is some fruit that takes place here at Athens. Um, we know of, of these, these folks but the one, or one prominent thing Luke wants us to recall is the curiosity that was involved. And in most of these cases, probably just a shrugging of their shoulders, rejection, and moving on with their life. Now that doesn't change the truth that they'll stand before that, that judge, before Jesus Christ. So as we proclaim the gospel... As we share the good news that, that Christ has come in the flesh, He died on the cross for our sin, He rose again three days later, and He's going to return. As we proclaim that message, the, the gospel, the call to proclaim the gospel, is not a call to be on God's advisory panel. It's not a call um, to be a, a new strategist. It is not a call to pragmatism to figure out what works, to just gather a bunch of people in one place. The call of, to proclaim the gospel is a call to faithfulness and accuracy. Just like Paul did in all of these places, and you had various responses. Some rejected, some were curious, but some believed. And Jesus is the answer for every man, woman, and child whether it's the Jew, whether it's the pagan, whether it's the common man on the street, or whether it's the intellectual in his high office. Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. We don't have to reprogram it for the context. Romans 1.16, Paul boldly said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Not my rhetoric, not my nice illustrations, 
But the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as we proclaim the gospel, recognizing that realistically, as we share the gospel, most people aren't going to believe. The majority won't. But there's a principle like in Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 2. It's the, the context is not necessarily evangelism, but the principle is the principle of diversifying. Solomon, in his wisdom, is saying it's good for you to diversify your different interests, whether financially or um, uh, whatever you're investing in for the economy, whatever. It's a principle. And he says, cast your bread upon the water. Send them out on different ships. For you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The point is, we need to be liberal with our witness. Not just wait until, you know, we get the, the goose pumps or we feel like we have every, every urge or feeling that we have to before we proclaim it to that one person. But we can, like the sower of the seed, it's okay to be indiscriminate with the proclamation of the gospel. Knowing that, that God will work in hearts. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. This is a very similar principle. Paul speaking to Timothy, he said, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So, Timothy, when it feels like it's bearing fruit, when it feels like it's not bearing fruit, preach the word. There was a, you may have, have seen it, we don't have time to show the video, but you may have seen it that Friday in Louisville, Kentucky, there was um, a, a, a truck, massive truck that jackknifed and uh, went across the bridge and it's hanging, the cab is hanging about 100 feet over the Ohio River and the driver is in there and the, the, fire, the first responders show up and um, they end up getting all these uh, zip lines and everything together and one one first responder goes down and rescues uh that that driver and so i was talking to somebody uh, in here that's a first responder and i says well how in the world do they pick who decides to do that uh, <laughs> because if that's me i'm like i, I don't want any interest in that no thanks uh, john you you can do it but what he said to me was everybody wants to do it everybody wants to do it because that's what they're trained for Gospel proclamation is not the job of the pastors. It's not the job of the pastor's wives. It's a job for all of us. And we can proclaim the gospel from the rooftop to as many people as we see because it is the thing that changes hearts and lives. It's the, the thing that can soften up the crusty, uh, hard top of the soil. The gospel does that. Now, there's a place, and God can also use... Um, he can use illustrations. He can, he can use good logic. And in fact, the gospel does not go against good logic. But we don't rely on those things. We don't rely on our winsomeness, our own charisma. And so if you're thinking that I don't have as much charisma as Jared or so-and-so, guess what? It doesn't matter. You don't need it. We're not called to, be, uh, to have that charisma. We're called to be obedient and faithful to what God has revealed. All right? Uh, worship team is going to come forward. Father, thank you for um, the power of your gospel. It's changed my life. 
it's changed other people's lives in here. There might be someone here today that it hasn't changed their life yet. And maybe they are grasping in the dark, trying to figure out how to live the good life, how to find meaning and fulfillment. But also, Lord, we know that a part of that is there, we have needs that's much greater than fulfillment. We have spiritual needs. We are separated from you. And if something doesn't change, we're going to be standing before you to be judged in a very negative fashion. But thank you that that same judge, he came and he took on flesh and he died in our place. And all we have to do is believe in him. Repent from the, the lifestyle of all the wrong things that we've chosen to find the good life in. Whether it's ourselves or whether it's... Uh, substances or whether it's sex or relationships God all we have to do is repent of those things and believe on Christ Lord thank you for that truth and so for those that are here this morning that that need that Lord I ask that you would work in your their hearts that you would reveal your truth Lord that they would come to Christ this moment and Lord help us to have a renewed uh, those of us that believe help us to have a renewed sense of the power of the gospel. Help us to have a confidence in your work and your word and not trust in our own selves. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Stand to your feet. We call this a time of public invitation. It's a time if you feel like God is working in your heart and there's some kind of need that you have, you need someone to pray with you, you'd like to know more about having a relationship with Christ or something completely different that you have going on in your heart right now and you just need to spend time with God. Humble your face before Him. This is a place that we can do that. And so I just ask that you would take a a few minutes, whatever God is doing in your heart, that you would respond to that. If you need to talk with somebody, I'll be right here and we can hook you up with someone. Whether you need to be led to Christ or you just need someone to pray with you. So the worship team's going to sing, and as they sing, you respond to whatever God is doing.